1: Hey everybody, Rev here. I'm the host and GM of The Crit Show, and if you aren't familiar with us, we are an actual play podcast which plays Monster of the Week and other Powered by the Apocalypse games all in one dimension-hopping story, Um, but I am actually here for a different purpose today. Evil Hat recently announced that they have a couple new games lined up for release in 2020, and I was able to sit down and chat with two of the creators of those games, and hear about some of the mechanics, the playbooks, and just the things in general that make these games stand out. So sit back, relax, and take a few moments to learn about Girl by Moonlight and Thirsty Sword Lesbians. I am here with April Walsh, creator of one of Evil Hat Productions' newly announced games, Thirsty Sword Lesbians. Thank you for joining me.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'm very excited to talk about this. Could you tell us a little bit about what Thirsty Sword Lesbians is?
2: Absolutely. Thirsty Sword Lesbians is a role-playing game where you are disaster lesbians with swords who are falling in love, having angst. And it's a game that can take place in any setting where hearts race and swords cross.
1: And this is a Powered by the Apocalypse game, correct?
2: Yes. Thirsty Sword Lesbians is based on the Powered by the Apocalypse engine. It has the same basic dice mechanic that distributes results between narrative upbeats and mixed beats and downbeats. And it has the playbook system. In this case, each of the playbooks, the different archetypes, are defined by a central emotional conflict. So, for instance... The Trickster playbook is a character who craves emotional closeness, but they fear vulnerability. And they fear vulnerability to such an extent that they may literally wear a mask, but they have the deception powers, the disguises, and so on. They also have a mechanic called too many feelings, where if you bottle it up too much, you might wind up erupting. Uh. So there's a balance to be played that makes sure that your character, who really doesn't want to be vulnerable, has multiple reasons to, role-playing and mechanically.
1: Could you give us some more examples of Of the other playbooks?
2: Absolutely. So, the Beast playbook is one of my favorites. The Beast is a character who lives outside of civilization, but there's a pressure for them to conform to civilized norms. So, they are with the group in a place that considers itself civilized, and they have a feral track. And while they're at zero feral, then they're blending in, they're accepted, but they can't use their beast powers. And the feral track moves depending on whether they are acting against their nature to go along with what civilization is demanding of them, or whether they are expressing emotion in a way that is unacceptable, or expressing themselves with some kind of visual display that is unacceptable. And... When you are at four feral, you transform and you might be a werewolf, you might be secretly a robot. But this is a playbook that's about pressures to assimilate versus self-expression. And it's a very queer playbook and it's very fun. And I think that you, whatever your lived experience is, taking a turn... Walking in the beast's skin could be a really interesting experience, depending on sort of what civilization is demanding of you. There's a playbook called The Seeker, which is oriented towards someone who comes from a toxic upbringing. And so they carry with them these commandments that are things like, never show your weak emotions, and they can earn this kind of sad currency called tradition that you can spend on things like placating the authority that issued the commandments, or you can reject those commandments forever and write your own convictions about what you truly believe. And then you can be a sort of uh, melodrama hero where there are moves for what happens if you just shout your conviction at someone while you're in a tense situation. These are some of the ways that the playbooks focus on a part of a character's emotional journey. And of course, like many PBTA systems, one of the options for advancement is to move into a new playbook. So you might have a character who started out as the trickster and wound up feeling comfortable with expressing themselves and not wearing the mask and being vulnerable, but now they are in a situation where the adoring fans of their talk show have decided that they have a destiny and are putting all this pressure on them, and they're they're going to take the chosen playbook, which is all about uh, social expectations versus what you personally really want for yourself.
1: Just off the bat, I love especially with the time of year that we're recording this. I love The Seeker because it reminds me of so many holiday meals that I have had over the last couple of years of various conversations and different mindsets around the table.
2: And part of figuring out what the setting is and the context is for your Thirsty Sword Lesbian story is coming up with two-ish toxic powers. So this is a game term. Something is a toxic power when it is in the world representing a sort of toxic desire, influence, value, agenda, so it could be a uh, exploitative megacorporation, it could be a colonialist empire, but It can also be something internal to your character's social order so it could be a cult that has taken root inside of an otherwise sort of wholesome society that your characters are in and that society is also an important part of setting up the story but the toxic powers are something that you either the game master will come up with it before the scenario or you'll do it collaboratively and then they are typically a constant source of inspiration for conflict external to the characters that's going to drive things forward.
1: So with the playbooks that you've described so far, can you talk a little bit about what some of the basic player moves are? Because I imagine from hearing the playbook so far that they might not be standard things like kick some ass or you know, investigate a mystery or spout lore. <laughs> uh,
2: absolutely. So all of the basic moves are there to specifically focus on some aspect of this very interpersonal or emotional story that's happening. So there is the figure-out-a-person move, but one of the conceits of this game is each playbook has a couple of additional questions that they can ask while figuring someone out if they are currently engaged in physical conflict. So the conceit is some truths of the heart are only visible when you cross blades. Uh. And each playbook can ask, ask different questions. So the scoundrel, who is one of the more questionable playbooks in terms of their values, really struggles with loyalty. The scoundrel is constantly looking to the next horizon. And when they're crossing blades with someone, one of the questions they get to ask is, what would make you run away with me? Uh What would make you shirk your your duties, right? Yeah. So a lot of the internal conflicts are reflected in what the characters bring out in the PCs and NPCs around them as well. I've drifted a little bit from the question that you asked, which is (laughs) to talk about the moves, because I got excited about (laughs) figuring people out across across blades, because that's really a central aesthetic of this game, is getting into sword fights and coming out of them with a better understanding of the person that you were fighting against, or making out with them, or sometimes you really do have to try to incapacitate someone, and that's just an unfortunate truth of being a marginalized person fighting for justice, is that's a thing that occurs in these narratives. So the fight move is present, and it probably doesn't look like what fight moves look like in other PBTA systems. There's no physical harm that this game really cares about. I care about what you feel and so when you are fighting the consequences for you as the person initiating it are always present there's no sort of cost-free glorious moment of doing some fight at somebody it's going to cost you something that's often a condition so for anyone who has played masks this is a really cool mechanic that the masks team came up with that replaces any kind of you know physical harm track with these emotional conditions like angry or frightened or hopeless and these are things that are difficult to deal with and if you get too many of them then that's a problem for you. So fighting will usually have some kind of emotional toll on you but it can also wind up giving you some emotional influence over the person that you are so sort of intimately engaged with and one of the things the game tells GMs in in adjudicating this is You're not rolling fight every time your sword is out. Sometimes you're trying to figure somebody out and you're just defending yourself long enough to do that. The fight move gives you a bunch of different paths out of trading blows because typically trading blows is not the most interesting thing that could happen in the story at that moment. So it's a way that you can wind up with better understanding or emotional leverage and then take the story in a new direction. That's not someone gets beat over the head until they are done having influence over the story, because that's not the kind of story that we're going to tell. Yeah. You can, but the game will invite you to do a bunch of different things as well.
1: Before we sat down to record, you had talked to me a little bit about the types of stories um, and influences that you had in creating this game. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I don't know if this is a universal experience, but it's certainly common in a lot of my circles to be watching mass media program and scream make it gay you cowards <laughs> and sometimes that's intentional queer baiting sometimes it's just subtext that shows up that the show's creators don't get and then we go and we write fanfic about it so that sort of urge to see stories that celebrate queer love and power that are positive and earnest and Romantic was a big impetus towards wanting to experience those stories at the table as a role player. And ultimately, I decided to make a game specifically geared for those kinds of stories. So this is the kind of game that does not have a specific setting that you have to play in. Rather, it's about a family of stories where you have this aesthetic of sword fighting and you have earnest romantic interactions. And if you port something into it, if you port Star Wars into it with lightsabers, if you port Highlander into it with immortal sword fighters, you're going to wind up with something that feels a lot like Slashfic of those shows because your characters will be flirting, your characters don't just want to cut each other's heads off they actually want to make out and you you have interesting narrative obstacles to that. So one of the basic moves is whenever you want, you can declare that your character has become smitten with somebody else, and there's nothing that's going to tell you, now you're smitten, that's entirely up to you. There are strings that suggest that people have emotional leverage over you, but this smitten mechanic is always up to you, and what it requires is that you answer a sort of very loaded question from your playbook. So, in the case of the scoundrel who has trouble with loyalty and seeks new horizons, the question is, why would your relationship never last? For the trickster who's so afraid about being vulnerable and open, the question is, what secret do you have that you are sure would make them reject you? Mm. So, as soon as you invoke the smitten move, you're telling the table, this is a thing that I would be excited to explore, and here's why that would be an exciting story, because there's a significant obstacle to it, and that obstacle relates directly to the emotional conflict that my playbook tells me my character is centered around. So that's a part of drawing in some of the tropes from fanfiction romances, I think in terms of mass media experiences, if you have ever seen The Princess Bride, uh, if you've never seen it, I'm going to spoil The Princess Bride. It's that scene where Wesley and Inigo are dueling at the tops of the Cliffs of Insanity, and they're flirting, saying, oh, you have this sword style, oh, I'm not left-handed, and they wind up pressing blades, and Wesley's back against the wall, rocks crumbling, and then Inigo leans in and kisses him passionately, and that's that's the scene from The Princess Bride. I'm sure you remember it. What that this game is closest to emulating.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to think of what to <laughs> flow into next. That's so good. Um, <laughs> do you have any advice or? Tips for folks when they get a hold of this game and they want to create these worlds, they want to create these characters. Do you have any pointers or suggestions or even sources for them to look at to get a better feel for the possibility of the worlds they might be creating?
2: So in the book as written, there are four really fleshed out scenarios that you can start with, and they range from Gal Paladins, which is a more Euro-flavored fantasy, or the Constellation Festival, which is a very community-oriented session, to Queers in Space, and There are also a couple dozen shorter prompts, many of which are sort of the base inspiration for a sword-fighting lesbian action romance. And then there are also a ton of examples and suggestions for tweaking aspects of the game to even go beyond swords. So it talks about what's the role of conflict in this game? like What's the role of the swords? And the role is that it brings two characters into this one-on-one, very close, conflict state where hearts are pounding and that's something that doesn't actually require swords it's hard to do it if you're at long range in mechs you need to think about like why are your cockpits you know glass to glass so that you can Uh meet eyes across your mech swords but you can do it and so i talk a little bit about how to do that one of the scenarios i'm proudest of is the chess club scenario that's called queen takes queen (laughs) where you have these intense flirty chess battles with each other. And so these are all there as inspiration to sort of get your own mind flowing. But there's also a world-building worksheet that will sort of step you through establishing in the world all of the things that you need to drive the story, making sure you have toxic powers, making sure you have a community, you have compelling NPCs, you have dramatic places where sword fights can happen. So that's all one piece of it. And then I think... When running the game, it's really helpful to follow the playbook conflicts. So I wrote a little two-page guide for the Game Master Mm. that's just, what do you do when you're not sure what to do next? And with specific advice for each of the playbooks as well, because they really provide a very rich opportunity to drive a story in the direction that the player has signaled they're most interested in. They all have built in this dilemma, and you can build NPCs connected to each prong of that dilemma and tempt the players in one direction or the other. And the players will also develop those dynamics among themselves. So part of character creation is a little bit of fleshing out some relationship history among the characters that is also designed to sort of kickstart some interesting emotional relationships and conversations. I think one place where GMs coming from other systems will will occasionally get caught up is that the game does not have detailed resolution mechanics for things that are not that don't have an emotional significance. So if you want your story to be about climbing walls and picking locks, and you really want to zoom in on that, you can. You might wind up rolling a lot of the Defy Danger move, or if it's really core to your campaign idea, you might write your own custom move for it. And uh, there's a section with guidance for that and suggestions, you know, does this need a move? Do you need to roll for this? Because I'm very much of the philosophy that you are only going to roll if every outcome is going to be interesting in some way. Yeah, And what we are most interested in is the characters' conflicts and feelings. And part of sort of expressing that design philosophy is the way that I describe the 10 plus, 7 through 9, 6 minus results is as a narrative upbeat, a mixed beat, or a downbeat. I think the place where this is most important is if you roll a six or less, it does not mean the character has failed at what they tried to do. So if this were a game where you had to roll to kick down a door and you roll a six or less, it doesn't mean you stubbed your toe and you're standing in front of a door feeling sad. It means you kick down the door and you burst in and your X is there and it was a trap. Uh... And now the spider demons are shooting webs at you, whatever. And basically that advice to never let a six minus either stop the action, Action, or there are cases where it doesn't make sense that the character is going to actually fail in that way or that w- that's not going to express who that character mm-hmm. is. And it's better to have the character sort of procedurally succeed and then show how narratively that's going to have bad consequences or even have an unrelated downbeat occur in the story that doesn't have to be causally linked to what they've done. And that's especially important in the emotional support move. So basically when you have these difficult conditions, you're angry, afraid, hopeless, insecure, etc., then there are two ways to recover from that. Similar to masks, you can either get support from another character or you can go and do a destructive action and the support that you get from another character has a chance of resulting in a narrative downbeat. So this move I'm gonna get into the weeds a little bit on this mechanic but this is a move where it would feel really bad to have a role-playing moment at the table where your characters really do connect and then the dice tell you no you don't yeah so that's not what the dice do the dice might tell you that you're about to kiss or whatever and then a spaceship bursts in through the window and starts laying waste to everything yeah or and then the other person's fiance shows up or whatever but uh, it's It's not going to tell you, no, actually you don't have those feelings that were so fun to roleplay through. And in addition, there are a few moves where spending a string gets you extra significant bonus on the mechanic. Those are places where the connection between the characters is something that you can pull on to push towards a narrative upbeat there because you as the player want that to be what happens in the story. So this is part of a whole bunch of tools around the way that the game distributes narrative authority and um, ties into safety and consent topics as well.
1: So on the idea of narrative authority, I'm sitting here thinking about even some of the scenarios that you've mentioned and you know, tracking a character through. You obviously have run this game a lot. You've seen some other people run the game as well. Like, Is it difficult with these strong battles and strong emotions? Is it difficult to share the spotlight? How do you go about sharing the spotlight around the table?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's a part of that that is general, you moderating a conversation, but the game tries to help you to do that in a few different ways. So one way is that there are moves where the person initiating the move is not the only person who's going to make narrative contributions in the course of resolving the move. Mm. So for instance, if I'm trying to emotionally support you, I'm going to say what I'm doing. You're going to say if that's something that might be meaningful Mm. and whether you open up to me over it. And then if one of us is smitten with the other, that also affects the outcome and you can choose to become smitten in the course of the move and that'll affect the outcome. So that's a way that the move is an invitation to a conversation between multiple people. And that's true of the fight move as well, in the sense that both the initiator and the player animating the other character in the fight will have choices to make in the resolution of that move. So that's one answer. Another is that relationships between the characters are important both because of the way that the story has developed and the way that they sort of reflect different dimensions of one another's conflicts, but also mechanically you can spend the strings that you have on people to tempt them to do things that you would like them to do or think would be dramatic, and also to help or hinder their roles. And when you do that, you also sort of fictionally explain how your character is doing that thing. So in addition to the general uh, suggestions for everyone at the table, not just the game master, but everyone at the table to try to make sure that you are sharing that spotlight, there are ways that the mechanics will share that focus as well.
1: So, when we play here at our table, you know, we have the luxury of having known each other for a very long time. And so we know the things that people are comfortable with, you know, the lines not to cross. How do you deal with that in a game about vulnerability and also about physical violence or also physical closeness and desire?
2: So, absolutely. That's critically important. And when you're trying to tell a story about emotional issues, then you're only going to be able to do that if everyone at the table feels safe doing that. And if they don't, then they will not engage at that level and you won't be able to sort of tell those stories. So the game has a multi-pronged approach to protecting and honoring player consent and safety. So first of all, it's baked into the moves. There's no mechanic that's going to tell you actually your character does something. Actually, your character falls in love. That is always for you to decide. And there are mechanics that will tempt you. So you can have that experience of feeling a temptation to do something backed by a mechanical benefit, like you're going to get an XP if you go along with this very bad idea to take the blood princess up on her invitation to go off alone with her, but nothing is going to sort of mind control your characters. That's not an experience that the game is going to force on anybody. So so that's one level, is how much autonomy the game preserves for each person. Second, there is a sort of toolkit of explicit safety tools that are provided, along with a default of there's not going to be any uncritical portrayal of oppression or toxic behavior. So as a default, if there is homophobia in this game. It's clear in the narrative that that's bad, and we're going to be working against it. And it's also an entirely valid choice to say, actually, I don't want that in my game at all, either ever or today. Like, I don't feel up to dealing with that today. I don't want to be reminded of it, even in a critical way. And so the script that the game provides by default for setting up um, expectations around content. And safety tries to set that norm that we're all looking out for each other. And that's a third prong beyond whatever, you know, the words are in the book. There are no words on a page that can substitute for having empathy for one another and understanding that these topics can be difficult to address and we're going to look out for each other and that everyone's well being at the table is a lot more important than the, you know, telling a compelling story or being true to your character. And so that social norm is something that I try to reinforce in the scripts and the examples and the options that are presented by the moves. And then finally, at the end of every session, there's a little move that will grant you some XP for doing things that are within the genre. And so this is a group award. Everyone gets the same number of XP. So if someone leaps into danger with daring and panache, someone confesses their love, But also, if someone has invoked any of the safety tools, then everyone at the table gets an XP. And that can be as simple as, I want to check in. Does anyone need a bathroom break? Or it could be as heavy as uh, an example that I don't want to bring up, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So that serves two purposes. One, it encourages people to be thinking about using the safety tools. And two, it's a moment at the end of every session to think, did we not use those tools because we didn't need them? Or was there something that kept us from stepping up for Mm. our safety or the safety of somebody else. And if that happened at the end of a session where there was sort of something unresolved and people need a little care, then it's a little reminder to do that. So I think safety and consent is... A hard thing to address, particularly if you're playing with a group you're not familiar with. And the game has done uh, as, as best as I know how to have your back if you're in that situation, so that you have the language and mechanics and tools and norms to call upon. And hopefully to educate folks who are facilitating the game so that they'll have your back, too.
1: So where should folks go if they want to learn more and keep an eye out on the status of Thirsty Sword lesbians?
2: If you go to GaySpaceship.com, you can check out my publishing imprint, Gay Spaceship Games, on Twitter. That's at GaySpaceshipGMS.com. And you can also visit swordlesbians.com to check out the landing page for the game. Evil Hat Productions will be publishing the game. It will be a physical book. Right now we are in a playtest phase and you can apply to join the playtests on evil hats website
1: yeah so as that gets closer we'll have to make sure to find a way to have you come back and either just remind us some things or you know maybe play a game with us or something
2: i would love that i would love to run a thirsty sword lesbians game for all of you
1: excellent well thank you again so much for joining us april and uh, we look forward to crossing swords
2: absolutely have a great new year
1: you as well and now I am joined by Andrew Gillis, creator of the newly announced game from Evil Hat Productions, Girl by Moonlight, a game of tragic magical girls illuminating the darkness. Thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. So could you tell us a little bit about Girl by Moonlight?
0: Yeah, so it is about magical girls, as the, as the tagline suggests, and it uh, uses them as a metaphor for exploring kind of a certain you know like my own personal queer experience of coming out of you know reliance on community and relationships to shelter one another from a kind of hostile or difficult world that they live in and so it's a it's a forged in the dark game so it's based on uh, blades in the dark by john harper and i've also tried to bring in a lot of the vibes from uh, monster hearts by avery alder i would say that those two games are the genesis of Of my game. So if you're familiar with either of them, you can kind of imagine uh, a blending of those two ideas. So, you know,
1: powered by the apocalypse games and fate games and forged by the dark games, they always have their own flavor, their own mechanics. You know, the thing that really makes them unique. Could you tell us about some of the things that are in Girl by Moonlight? Yeah.
0: So some of them are, I mean, I guess like unique. Unique in a sense, but also stolen. Um, so, like, <laughs> like I mentioned, you know, Monster Hearts was very kind of informative to to my design process, and so lovingly homaged. Yeah, exactly. So similar to Darkest Self in Monster Hearts in Girl by Moonlight, the characters can go into what's called Eclipse, which is like a kind of a dark inversion of their given archetype. For example, the there's a a time traveler archetype, and when that character goes into Eclipse rather than being committed to kind of changing fate, they embrace it and kind of stop trying to hedge against this this thing that they have foreseen or that they, that is meant to happen and instead kind of nihilistically or fatalistically embrace it. You know, each each character archetype will have a kind of a different version of, of this. And there's a prompt on your sheet for you to play into. And then there's there's a means whereby other characters can help your character get out of that state and uh kind of while you're in eclipse there's all kinds of incentives to you know be a little bit more dark and edgy and and kind of embrace this this inversion of the archetype that you've been playing into all this time the thing i really enjoyed about you know my own experiences of playing monster hearts is that it's fun to both kind of play within the bounds and then get a occasionally get an opportunity to really just run wild and do a bunch of stuff that's you know, contrary to your own interests, contrary to how your character is kind of meant to behave or, or expected to be. And I think that really is reflective of this idea of growing pains or of kind of the difficulty of becoming something else that than what you are, that occasionally we all feel this need to kind of lash out or kind of cry against these expectations that we're putting on ourselves or these difficult things that we're going through. And just to like kind of tear things up or or misbehave you know we all have that urge and so it's nice yeah that the game can kind of give you permission to do that and give you some tools to help you do that in a way that is like fun and fulfilling and also has like a end cap to it so you can't just you know totally tear everything down there's there's a there's a limiter on there that's built in and an opportunity to kind of uh in my game there's an opportunity to kind of have this redemptive moment where someone else can swoop in and and offer you kind of an olive branch or whatever to help you out of that state. Oh, okay. And so it, it builds back in this idea of mutual care, which is really, really uh, fundamental to a lot of how the game works.
1: So I might have gotten a little bit ahead of myself, kind of in the excitement about talking about the unique features. Could you tell us a little bit about the stats that you use in the playbooks?
0: Yeah. So um, there are seven playbooks and four uh, what I call series play sets, which kind of replace the kind of like crew space of Blades in the Dark. And then the game has uh, nine action ratings. And so the actions are confess, forgive, perceive, express, defy, empathize, conceal, flow, and analyze. So like in games like Blades in the Dark, and in a lot of more kind of traditional uh, role playing games, we really spend a lot of time talking about like a tactical battlefield. You know, we need to know these kind of details of the space we're in as it is useful for, you know, fighting or doing action sequences, that kind of thing. In Girl by Moonlight, there's much more of an emphasis on like an emotional landscape. And so the field of play is a little bit different. We still will see certain archetypes more so than others. You know, some of the characters will be engaging in more like fighty type of behaviors. But even then, there's still an emphasis on like how does it feel to be fighting what are we fighting for or about and that we're not really meant to be kind of defeating opponents so much as connecting and understanding this antagonism and that sometimes that means that we will decide that we should fight but other times it might mean that we you know seek reconciliation or healing that there's a bit more space for for alternative Outcomes to antagonism. And so I've tried to emphasize that by having forgive be as, in terms of how the game considers these things, forgive is the same as defy, right? So defy would be when you muster your courage and face opposition head on. And that is held to be equivalent to when you show that you care for someone despite a mistake they have made.
1: Uh, so instead of, you know, you have a creature who was born. By a, you know, an accident that they caused instead of going and tracking them down and and fighting them, you might find them and discover that what they need is for someone to understand why what happened and to just give them forgiveness might be the way to not even defeat, but to, to, I guess, defeat still technically that enemy.
0: Yeah. And so that the threat of like, oh, yeah, there's this monster and it's, you know, steals kids from the local high school or whatever that we could go and rather than needing to like stab it with a sword which you know you could still do I guess if that's what your character really is all about but there is there is room to say like oh this this monster the supposed monster is hurting and is a you know has a essentially a human heart that we can connect with mm-hmm. and so you know we can we can talk about like why is this monster taking kids from the local high school and what what injury has been done to this this person or this being that has caused them to behave this way and how can we how can we reconcile ourselves with this thing or change it, uh, mend its heart, that kind of stuff.
1: So you had said that you know some of the the playbooks might be more fighty, some might not. Um, what are
0: some of the playbooks? They range from the unlikely hero, which uh, is kind of like a not quite there yet magical girl, uh, who's still kind of figuring out their power and doesn't, doesn't really have access to a lot of the like superhero stuff, uh, straight away. And they have this kind of built in, uh, narrative arc of, of discovering and accessing that power and it, and a transformation that occurs within the character. So at first you can't transcend, which is how you use all your like magical girl powers. You just can't, Mm. everyone else can, and your character can't, (laughs) Um, and at some point in some clutch moment where only you can save someone, your power kind of manifests and kicks on, and then you switch over to this other mode and remain a little bit like unsteady on your feet, but you, you have this power now. Mm. And so their arc and their kind of archetype is kind of innately hopeful and a little bit naive. And a lot of the kind of stuff that they get in their sheet reflects that. So I would say that they're very much at the forefront of this idea of like, understanding and forgiving and trying to heal or mend in part because they like can't fight effectively at first yeah um but also because you know that's still important and when they when they do finally get their powers it's probably more likely to be in that restorative vein just because of the place that they start out at and the Mm. the different perspective that they'll have. And they're kind of meant to be in contrast to characters like, uh, let's see who's probably the most fighty. I would expect it would be the outsider. And the outsider is built on this idea of having a rival and a really, a really fun pairing would be for their rival to be the unlikely hero. I really like playing that way.
1: Oh, okay. So like a rival within the team.
0: Yeah. Okay. Pretty much all of your uh, special abilities point at this rival and interact with them in some way. So it's about like, you know, like you can always know where they are. You can like appear suddenly wherever they are and like help them out, just to kind of show them up. And the game does not require that it make much sense necessarily, but because yeah, because you know you're a rival, so of course you're there, right? Like your archetype kind of demands access to that person, and so you get it all the time, which is really fun. And so the outsider also carries uh, some options around being like a former former baddie, uh, and so they get to have access to speaking with or engaging with the antagonism in a different way, because they kind of used to be one of them and have switched sides is kind of one of the ways you can play it. And so depending on which angle you take with them, you know, they can be this kind of like brash, maybe even arrogant character who's always trying to like outdo one of the other protagonists and you get to decide kind of what those reasonings are, but they they are geared more towards direct opposition on account of that that brash nature right of just mm-hmm. being like oh why are you trying to you know why are you trying to like talk to this thing what's wrong you dummy like i'll I'll show you what needs to happen is this and you go and like punch the thing or whatever because that's just who you are but there's also room for doing that and having that lead to or be a setup for that other softer approach it's not necessarily so that this character is trying to like you know beat down the monster's hit points And then someone else is trying to like talk to it and that operates on a different mechanical plane or whatever. These things all Mm. can serve each other. So like my outsider who is rivals to this unlikely hero, we have this argument about how we should solve things. I go off and try to beat it up, but that action can still set up ultimately – the unlikely hero forgiving this creature or whatever, right? Like through me fighting with it, we see this other side of it and then someone else swoops in to kind of finish it with this different approach. So despite being a rival, the outsider is always still part of the team and is still helping out. It's just that their approach is probably very different than a lot of the other characters. And then their motivations are different. But ultimately, we all are still on the same team. And that's really, really... Another thing that's very fundamental to the game is that the characters are always, at the end of the day, a functional team. Even even the outsider who is in it for a lot of the wrong reasons is going to contribute to the the cause. And yeah, and so there are a bunch of other uh, archetypes that range uh, through you know, various tropes that we would recognize from magical girl fiction. So like, there's the enigma... Who is the tuxedo mask playbook? You're aloof, oh. <laughs> mysterious. You know, you swoop in at the last moment to save the day, and no one knows that their friend so and so is also this you know mysterious masked hero. Um, you get to keep that kind of superhero identity split, and there are a bunch of things that play around with that. There's also the guardian who lives by a code, and actually, I'm really I really like this uh, ability, so I'm going to read it out. So they have a, a a move that they always get called honor bound which says you live by a code. Your code forgives all but one of the following <laughs> violence, lying, admitting fault, asking for help. And so you only get to do one of those things. So if you can do violence, you can never admit fault or ask for help. Oh wow. If you, if you can lie, then you can never do violence. So, you kind of have to make this choice about like this difficult choice of what is the one thing that I am permitting myself. Um, and whatever you end up choosing, you end up missing out on a bunch of other things that you might, you know, as a player or as a character, your character might want to do those things. And so – you know, you, it's not mind control, obviously, like your character can still break their code, but there's incentives for not doing so, and it's meant to signal, like, this is, this is what your character is about, is about having these rules that you live by, mm-hmm. and the complexity of trying to get other people to do that as well. And, You know that it's it's often not possible to do the right thing and still honor your you know your rigid code that you live by, and it doesn't get to change. (laughs) You know you're you're kind of locked in and committed because that's how those kinds of things work. So in addition to that, there's the Harmony, who is based on Garnet from Steven Universe, who's a so they're an embodied relationship. Uh, There's the time traveler, who I mentioned earlier, who is. You know, has traveled through time in some way, and that can be more or less met literal or metaphorical depending on your, you know, tastes and, and needs of your setting. But the big thing that matters is that they are here to prevent a dark fate from happening for someone else. And so they're kind of deeply invested in a particular character and a bad thing that they fear will happen to that character. There's the stranger who has a different relationship to emotion and uh, kind of empathy than the other characters do. Uh, and so while they are kind of at a remove, they still have all these feelings, but they kind of happen internally more so than getting expressed outwardly. They really struggle to with that, and so the playbook kind of explores. A bunch of those ideas around kind of limited access to vulnerability and being able to share with other people and the ways that you can get around that. And yeah, that's the list. So I have these these seven archetypes, which it's not an exhaustive list, but I think these are the ones that, you know, most appealed to me and I wanted to have a tightly curated set. So I've tried to keep some good variety and options for people, but I still wanted to have like a this is the character set. It's a little bit narrow. Um, But it's going to give you an experience, a particular experience pretty consistently.
1: I'm curious, is there in this game that element of, like, I'm starting to think about all the different sources that I know for this type of, of story or setup or team play. Is there an element for the, you know, I'm thinking of all of those different spirits and cats and various things that have that otherworldly knowledge that kind of sometimes follow around one of the characters to, to help them. Right.
0: The, uh, the kind of lore mouthpiece of the setting. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So rather than put that in one player's hands, uh, What I've elected to do is uh, so for any given uh, series, which is kind of the like the big kind of overarching sheet that encompasses antagonism and kind of like the team for the for the magical girls as well. Uh, And these playsets, as I call them, it's like three different sheets typically. Uh, And so there's some stuff that is for the protagonists. And there's always one sheet for the director. The director's sheet has this list picking game that we all kind of do at the start, which is how we set up. The setting, the antagonism, the nature of the magical girl's power—all these kinds of details—we all set that up together, and so there's no need for the director to have this kind of mouthpiece mm, in mm-hmm. the fiction. Like you know, it makes sense in a in like a TV show or a, or a more kind of fixed narrative where we're not all you know everyone that's watching it isn't participating in authoring it. Yeah. Um, and it has that kind of top-down vibe, but I really wanted to keep that kind of authority distributed. Yeah, uh, in my game, and so. The, the players all together, everyone at the table, we all collaboratively come up with like, what is the real kind of nature of this darkness that is the magical girls are going to be facing? Everyone's invested in that and everyone has had some input in it. And so we all kind of share this collective authority about authoring details of it. So there's room for someone's character to be. And I think I've I watched a, an actual play of the game where someone was that kind of like mascot uh, character. I think they played a guardian and they were like someone's little dog, oh, little like cute puppy yeah. and that talked to them. And, and you know, their day to day struggles were about being a super intelligent dog that everyone just treated like a regular dog, <laughs> um, which was really funny and cute uh and still still managed to be poignant which was very well done by them yeah uh but then yeah they also had this like transformation into this like superhero mode and so it was like a little bit of a different twist where like you know in sailor moon the cats just know things and don't have direct power they kind of spanned a little bit of space between like being that knowledgeable elder figure but then also like fighting and doing stuff but still someone actually played that character um yeah and it was great it totally worked and And there's room for, like, if you as a player don't necessarily know the answer, but your character should, there are ways for you to, uh, by, like, gathering information and some of the other mechanics in the game, you can position yourself to have your character speak with authority. So, yeah, there's much more of an emphasis on, you know, to finally answer your question, there's much more of an emphasis on us collectively establishing those details rather than kind of one person needing to carry all of that load. Mm -hmm. Because... I'm not a big fan of games that require that ask that much of one player specifically to be like, cool. So everyone else only needs to like deal with this very tightly contained thing of like, they're just playing a character. And then you, you, my poor victim, you got to do all this stuff. And it's like really open ended and poorly defined and, and, you know, endlessly sprawls is kind of my experience of like being a, a DM in a lot of games. So I've tried to relieve some of that pressure and redistribute some of that authority in ways that. That will make the experience more enjoyable, I think, for everyone. The experience for the protagonist to be able to, by building their own antagonism, but not getting to embody it, they're really invested in the thing that they're contending with. And you're guaranteed to kind of hit the mark in terms of like, mm. is my villain cool and compelling yeah. for the characters? And the answer is yes, of course it is, because you all together made it. And it's you know what it's about. It's All the characters are built Following the establishment of the antagonism. And so everything's going to kind of be pointed at each other in useful ways. And so I've tried to like structure this, this kind of session zero or startup of play in such a way that we all together make the thing. The thing is going to be cohesive. We set ourselves up to have this good punchy story. And we're all invested in it because we all made it. Mm. It's not like one person brought all this prep. Yeah. And then it's doomed to either disappoint themselves or their player, you know, the other players. So
1: you talk about the idea of, you know, everybody, we sit around together and we we answer some core questions and that helps design the world. But you also mentioned earlier that you have some settings to put games in. Could you talk about those a little bit?
0: Yeah. So there are four different series. Uh, And each one will have like a totally different, you know, setup experience that we were just talking about that's different for each one. They all have a different set of themes that they're about, or a different like twist on the core themes of the game, I really should say, because they're all kind of fundamentally about the same stuff, but, you know, different facets of it. So there's In the Kingdom of Dawn, which is a kind of classic you know, hopeful magical girl story. It includes a lot of prompts or like setting elements that gear it more towards, you know, like Sailor Moon does this where like, oh yeah, there's a magical moon kingdom. And then there's still like earth as we know it and all this very familiar stuff. So it does a lot of that pairing of the familiar and the magical and that kind of idea of like a split reality. Uh, it includes all of mm-hmm. that, that kind of stuff. There's a big emphasis in that one, especially in this idea of giving monsters human hearts. And so there's always redemption is kind of always on the table and is very much part of what the game is meant to explore. And then there's in darkest night, which is the edgy inversion of all of that stuff. It's this like more cynical approach to magical girls that are like a revisionist genre piece. If you want to use that kind of description for it, it is a similar framing, but you know, redemption is never on the table. It's very fatalistic. It's very tragic. And the, the character's own power is kind of like complicit in all of the darkness that is occurring, rather than kind of fighting to redeem, you know, these twisted or broken people. Instead, the magical girl crew like hunts and consumes the powers of dark entities. Oh, um, and that's what like fuels them. And essentially, the core thing in that uh, series is about playing into this kind of inevitable tragic undoing that we all kind of know about in advance and we're all putting our little dramatic irony hats on and we as players are playing with much more information than the characters have about how mm. how badly things are going to go for them and we take an interest in seeing what does what does their fall look like or, or do they somehow manage to like eke out this almost impossible kind of escape from this doomed fate so for people who are really you know fans of madoka you know this is the this is the playset for you Mm -hmm. um it's going to give you that whole experience
1: those moments of brightness that you can find
0: in an inevitable sunset in the absolute darkest yeah and it's it does include this idea that like there is this little sliver of maybe it's going to be okay that always (laughs) is there at the very distance you can see it and like maybe just maybe you'll get that and very likely you won't yeah but the characters certainly believe very strongly in that hope and are and are struggling towards it and fighting for it, which I think is really is really beautiful and i I really like that kind of play. So I wanted to make something that could support and enable and kind of indulge in that stuff.
1: yeah, there's something very touching about you know, a world where you have very little hope and you have this group of characters who are Fighting against all odds, um, there's something that kind of gets me about that. Compared to a, you know, a world where everything is a little nicer and a little more hopeful, and they're trying to stop the coming darkness. I love people who are fighting against the darkness that is already here.
0: Yeah, it's very much the like the stakes are super, super high, and the costs are very severe. Yeah. It's just like this really exaggerated, uh, very punchy kind of narrative. The remaining two, there's Honesty of Stars, which is. Uh, magical girls piloting giant robots fighting the leviathans who are who have come to destroy the last remnants of humanity and so it's a uh, it's uh inspired by Diebuster and a couple other kind of weird niche shows uh that work within that space of combining yeah giant robots in this case giant emotional robots called engines uh and then these It's the word, kaiju kind of analogs in the Leviathans. Um, My mind just kept going to Uchu kaiju, which is space monster, which is my favorite (laughs) subcategory of that. Um, But yeah, so there, there is this, you know, last bastion of humanity that the crew is kind of fighting to protect. But in the course of surviving against this extinction level threat, humanity kind of has become a monster or has created these... Institutions that are monstrous in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And so the big central tension in Honesty of Stars is that the characters are kind of caught between two different types of monsters. There's the kind of very literal, they're giant alien space squid things that have come to just destroy the planet for some reason that we don't understand. There's that kind of monstrousness. And then there's, you know, humanity in this like perpetual state of war that is you know ruled or governed by these very authoritarian institutions that feel that they have that, that that the ends justify the means for them so that they'll do anything to survive even if that means doing horrible things to people and like the the cost of survival can be so 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 great in these situations that it twists that kind of noble intent of trying to, you know, live or save people and makes it monstrous. So mm. that's the big thing at the root of that game, which I think is really fun to explore. And is you know, it'll be familiar to people who are fans of that genre. And I think like, you know, Pacific Rim did a great job of talking about that kind of stuff of like, cool, you're fighting to save humanity, but like, mm. is humanity worth saving? What is humanity like yeah. in these situations? And and seeing both the light and dark sides of it, I think is, is neat to explore. And lastly, there is In a Maze of Dreams, which is uh, inspired by a bunch of the work of Satoshi Kon. So uh, like Paprika being kind of the key point of inspiration, as well as the Persona series of video games. And In a Maze of Dreams has kind of the Magical Girl crew tangled up in a dark conspiracy. Uh, And the conspiracy is both a organization in the way that we might expect one to be, but then also is kind of this... This like virus of human thought, this mimetic virus. And so it's an idea that has taken on a life of its own and is sinister mm. and has kind of through its propagation kind of created this this human organization. And the character, the protagonists go into people's dreams and kind of try to figure out what their involvement is and confront them about their complicity in this this dark conspiracy that seeks to, in some way, fundamentally like take over or change people's dreams. And we're talking when we say dreams in this context, we mean both like literally the things they imagine in their head, but also the dreams as in their aspirations, their hopes there. You know, it's trying to like change the psychological landscape of all of people.
1: I love the inclusion of all of these because they're such drastically different stories that come into my head. Like if I think about the players at my table and if I pick one of these four things, how different the stories would be going through those. So it's a really neat feature to have in this.
0: Yeah, I absolutely love like remixing or the idea like and that idea kind of taken as in the broader sense um and i think it's really fun to see people take the same kind of pieces so like i give you you know this list of prompts for each series that covers you know the antagonism the setting etc and to, to give people these, to give different groups of people these lists and see what comes out of that, right? Like, oh yeah, you guys chose that the conspiracy is a single dream that plagues the world. And like my table did that too, but for ours, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was this thing and our story went this way. But with you, it was this other thing. It went this yeah. other direction. And oh, isn't that neat? Cause we both share this kind of kernel at the, at the root of the thing of like, okay, we took this prompt, a single dream that plagues the world. You know, what, what can you spin out of that? And everyone's always going to make something different. And it's really, really fun. Because I remember, you know, playing Apocalypse World, you know, every, every time there's always a Rolf ball or whatever, right? Like, it's fun to share those stories about like, oh, yeah, what was Dremor like in your game versus what was Dremor in my game? And to have that that shared piece to act as a, as a link between my table and yours, I think is really, really fruitful and really fun to see. So I really wanted to have something like that in my game. I think it's really fun to share those things across different tables and all
2: that kind of stuff.
1: So we've talked about the mechanics of the game and some of the playbooks, but I want to talk about the types of stories that you built this to tell. You know, before we had a chance to sit down and do this interview, I was... Uh, I was going through Twitter, and I came across your Twitter feed, and I was just kind of reading through some of the things, and you had posted some excerpts from your player guides in the book. Mm -hmm. There were things like seeing things through the queer lens and revealing your inner worlds, and I had a chance to read through those, and first, they're really beautifully written, Um, and it's, it's not a... I don't want to say game mechanic, but it's not a a tool that I have been given in other games so far. And the way that it was explained, you know, I feel like makes it very clear that if you are at a table that may not have experienced things like this in your life, you give us the tools to tell those stories. Um, So could you talk a little bit about the, the idea and the influence behind the types of stories you're wanting to tell?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a difficult Thing with role playing games that um, you know you want there to be this certain outcome as a designer, right? You want it to mm. to reliably produce a certain type of story. And I'm a very mechanics forward designer. I always try to think of like I'm going to make this thing that's going to give you that experience. And no, I don't want to talk to you about it or really explain it. I kind of just want to be like, just do this do this thing, just trust me. And when it's over, when you've done the thing, emergently, there will be this, this feeling or this experience that you will have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd kind of Part of it is like, I don't want to spoil that. I want to let you come to some of these conclusions yourself. But what I have, you know, in terms of like watching people play games a lot and like, and really reflecting on like how people engage with them. I've also seen that people tend to bring a lot of their own stuff to games. It's very rare that people are willing to just kind of put themselves fully. If we imagine this is like a trust game, right? Like they're not going to just fall blindly into the waiting arms of my game. Yeah. Uh, A lot of people, you you know, have things that they're excited about, which, you know, fair enough. And they want to like, oh, yeah, I really want to do this kind of thing. And I've got this game and I think it'll work for it. Like, here we go. It's very rare that people come as just like a blank slate. Like, just, I'm just going to play this game. I have zero expectations. That's very unusual. And so a big thing that I needed to add to my kind of writing or to like bring people into the game is stuff like these agenda items that are really meant to, you know, both be helpful, but also help uh, kind of structure people's expectations. Um, And be like, cool, this is the kind of experience that you're going to sit down and have. And again, I still don't want to like fully, I don't want to just tell you everything you're about to feel. And ultimately I can't um, just because of the nature of the thing, but uh, to kind of like set people up to more successfully end up in that place that I want them to end up. And, you know, it's, it's kind of unfair to just send people in blind a lot of the time, as much as I have that instinct as a designer, just be like, no, just, just trust me. Just, just don't talk, just do the thing. (laughs) <laughs> and so these were kind of written in that with that in mind, and I've tried to make them you know evocative. and I've spent a lot of time with my editor kind of going over them and, and polishing them to get them so that they kind of sing and are, and are concise and, and really inspire people to want to to want to have that experience that I you know, think that my mechanics can deliver on to get people excited about this thing that I'm excited about.
1: Yeah, and I will say that it, it shows that a lot of care was put into it just the way that it's written. I mean, it's it can't be five or six lines, and it, it really tells you something about the world.
0: Specifically with the see-through queer lens item, it was also really important to me, since I'm kind of directly addressing the game's politics, to do that in a way that was both correct and clear, Uh, that anyone, regardless of their level of familiarity, could kind of read it and get what the game is about, but also that would not talk down to anyone. Mm. Like if you were really familiar with that stuff, it wouldn't be like a 101 level thing that made you feel like a child as it explained it to you. So a lot of care went into that. And, you know, like I'm going to write it And be happy with it now. And then like two years from now, I'll probably look back at it and be like, oh, that's showing its age already, just by the nature of those kinds of things. And so again, trying to write it in a way where that would be less of a problem. And it was a little bit more open ended and able to kind of flex and adjust to different contexts and different times and all that kind of stuff. It was a a tricky thing. I'd be happy to read it and then talk about it a little more. Yeah, please. So it reads, Queer content enriches the experience of play and is fundamental to the themes and mechanisms of this game. The protagonists are uncertain and fluid in their identities and defy cultural monoliths of gender and relationships. Their journey includes a search for personal truths alongside their other goals. Antagonism will echo these themes as well, showing tragic outcomes of the same journey or dysfunctional, selfish reflections of the ideals the protagonists are pursuing look for ways to reframe the stakes and possible outcomes of conflict to include mending care and connection, humanize and embrace the other reject binaries and explore more complicated answers to questions of identity, love and community. And so, you know, this touches on some of the stuff we were talking about uh, prior with the character playbooks, right? Like the unlikely hero leans into this stuff in a bunch of ways and the other playbooks do, but in, you know, they're all exploring kind of different facets of this. So all of the different character archetypes play into this. All of the antagonism in the game does as well, which I think is really important. So it's not just that we see the kind of wish fulfillment, embodiment, you know, aspect in the protagonists, but also that the director, the director has this same, this principle applies to them as well. And they are through their play and through their expression, working towards the same goal. Um, When they show antagonism, it shouldn't just be like, oh, yeah, this person is bad. They're super bad. They twirl their mustache. They tie you to the train tracks. They're that kind of person. It's like, you know, they'll have a reason for doing what they're doing, and it's going to be a reasoning that is probably familiar to or relatable for the protagonists. They're going to be, as it says, like a dark inversion or a dysfunctional selfish reflection of the ideals that the protagonists have. So that might be someone who who had that same kind of formative experience, but it sent them in this totally different direction of like, oh, what I need to do is like close off and never trust anyone and just carve out my own space. I think we've all kind of seen this in fiction and, you know, in our own lives, we'll see people who have, yeah. you know, like, oh, you grew up in the same town as I did and we're treated the same way and you, you turned out totally different than I did. Why would that be? And so the game invites you to consider the kind of humanity of the the other or the adversary and for the characters in the fiction to actively embrace that and explore that as well. It's not just that we as players, through the kind of narration at the back end, see like, oh, yeah, it was super sad. Or like, oh, how tragic that that person really was like nice all along. The characters should see that and should understand that and engage with that more directly. It's not just like, oh, the villain, we killed the villain. And then in their speech as they're dying, right? Like, it's not just that. It's that. The act of wrestling with them is going to be an exploration of their character as well as your own.
1: So, for those folks who are listening who want to get involved, you right now are doing open beta. How can people get involved with the open beta?
0: Uh, yeah, so through the Evil Hat uh, webpage, there is a sign-up form, um, and that'll get you the PDF of the rules and all of the play materials. And then it will also ask you to, when you're done, to fill out a survey. And because this is kind of the beta stage and also I have a, so I have a background in uh, games testing. And so I'm very like testing is a big deal for me and I feel a certain need for rigor around it. Uh, And so this stage of testing, which I have reached is now the kind of more high level. Like I need a bunch of people to play the game and to get kind of broad sweeping feedback through a form that I can have some data around. I need some, some trends and some graphs and some pie charts and stuff at this stage. Uh, and so the hope is to have a lot of people banging on the game, you know, see where they bounce off of it, see what they have trouble with, see where it's clear, where it isn't all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, I invite, you know, your listeners and everyone else to take a swing at my game, see how it plays, uh, and then let me know through this form, uh, so that I can make those kind of last fine tuning adjustments and, and make it so that the game is. Comprehensible, approachable for as many people as possible—that kind of thing—which is very important to me. Uh, that it not just be, you know, super niche and that it exclude people. I want a wide range of people to be able to play this game and and to have this experience, uh, which I think is it's really important. Whether it's a familiar experience and it can be kind of cathartic, or if it's you know a new experience to you and you get to explore these ideas that maybe you wouldn't have had an opportunity to otherwise. I think both are great.
1: When does the beta go until?
0: Uh, so it wraps up at the beginning of February. Okay. So basically, like the month of January, plus a little bit of time still in December. Uh, and that's when that's when the like you'll still have access to the thing. If your game runs a little longer and you send me the feedback later, that's fine too.
1: All right. Well, thank you for joining us today, Andrew, and telling us about Girl by Moonlight.
0: That's great. Thanks for having me.
1: So hopefully you enjoyed learning some about Thirsty Sword Lesbians and Girl by Moonlight. I know that we are very excited to play these games. Uh, So again, you can head over to EvilHat.com to find out more about these games and how to get involved in their open beta. We'll see you next week.
0: The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.
2: My friend Shayna was like, just so you know, everyone in the Villainous League is coming to kill you. And I was like, oh boy.
0: Imagine NPR in the MCU,
2: the Daily Planet's style desk. Car talk for jetpacks.
1: It's these American
0: supers,
2: 100 invisible.
0: The speech bubble. It's sequential. The utility belt.
2: Superhuman Public
0: Radio is a fiction podcast telling the hilarious and heartbreaking stories of people in a superpowered world.
2: I thought I was going to die. An invisible car in Chicago. A wee supervillage?
0: These are the stories that fall between the panels of comic books. I think they knew that I didn't mean to do that to Arizona. Wasabi. Oh
2: my God! He could kill himself.
0: Kid, I feel like you're not giving this problem your all.
2: No, no. Yes, I guess most people would call them a death squad. Ta-da.
0: Superhuman public radio. Superhuman stories.
2: The only limits are your imagination. And I have a wild imagination. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. This is SPR. Name the supervillain and we've done the gig. But these
1: Wall Street types that lackey answers to, yikes.